You're listening to Death of the Reader. Flex and Herds here for your Murder Mystery World Tour, and we are discussing Massacre Togawa's The Master Key. We're going up to and including Chapter 7 today. And Herds, that's a lot of the book. It is! It's most of the book. A lot of this twisty-turvy, curvy, maze-like book that only has eight chapters in Napolo and has lots of lots of puzzles in it. I am terrified, and I am <laughs> yeah. herds. I have been challenged to solve this, this murder mystery for you today in which there may or may not be a murder. No, well, there, is. there definitely is at least one murder. There's definitely at least one there's murder. Least one murder. But, but you can understand my confusion coming into this, Flex. I can understand your confusion, <laughs> and I think, herds that where I wanted to start today is uh-huh. that this is why I love this book so okay. much. I mentioned previously on the show, this is our second week covering this novel, and last week I was talking about how when I first came across this book, I found it because people were describing it as a fair play mystery. Mm. And when people are describing something as a fair play mystery, you know, it immediately piques my interest, especially out of Japan, because they love themselves the Honkaku mystery. And uh, when I started reading this book, I thought to myself, there is no way this could possibly be a fair play mystery. <laughs> Nothing is getting the appropriate time of day. And then when I got up to chapter six, I thought to myself, oh, I see what's going on here. This is a bit of a, a bit of a twist, a bit of a play on the genre. Yes. And then I went through chapter seven and I thought to myself, I see. I see what's going on here. Oh. And Herds, I hope, I hope you've had the same reaction. I, I think my mind is a bit scrambled. Uh, I want to go into this saying I've had some some messages, some interactions with, you know, some people who listen to the show and they've told me that I've gone off the deep end. I'm a bit of a a conspiracy theorist. And let me tell you, yes, I am. And we're going to be going down the rabbit hole today in part three. uh, So look forward to that. But yeah, I have thoroughly enjoyed reading this book. And I think the key uh, pun intended to this mystery is that it is completely backwards. Uh I kind of love the way that, you know, part two, where you ended it last week, obviously. Yeah. This was good. good move on your part. Ending part two with, you know, oh, somebody's trying to get in the 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 bathroom downstairs and somebody's talking about how Miss Ueda has, has killed herself. We end chapter seven at that moment again. I know. It's, it's really which is nice. Wonderful. Uh, this is a story uh, on a whole about motherhood and secrets and tragedy and, like, cycles – and in a sense, the master key is our point of view character. We're it is. following the master key as it's being used by these different residents in, in the hotel or in the apartment block to show us the secrets of the different characters, both those you know whose rooms we intrude upon mm. and also those characters who use the key. The key itself is a, an instrument of, of power and of... of unlocking secrets and i kind of love it i know and herds are you familiar i assume you are knowing yourself with the ring of gaijis gaijis i mean i'm probably familiar with it remind me uh so the ring of gaijis is a famous philosophical parable where basically if you were to get a ring that turned you invisible yes would you having the power to avoid being held responsible for your actions <laughs> commit crimes yes and that is <laughs> that is basically what goes on in this book is that yes. we hand around the proverbial mm. ring of gaijis yes, the yes. master key to various characters and we get a character study of them mm-hmm. with accountability removed from themselves yeah and i i think it's also important to kind of kind of note here that the theme of the story as far as i can understand it is 
is is not just that people have secrets, right? Like the yeah. framing device of this story is that there's all these these elderly women who have had full lives or or less full lives, but you all have some tragic trauma, some secret that they're trying to hide. But also that secrets will always come out, and there is always someone lurking just around at the you know the foot of the bathroom door stairs to observe. There's one character in particular named Sue Yatabe who describes. Uh, the abuse that she suffered at the hands of her old music teacher. And of course, this leads into the story because she she decides to like get back at him. And the novel points out that her recollection of events is subjective. Mm. And so she thinks, you know, maybe I did love him, even though it's clearly like not a good situation. Like yeah. this is clearly a, 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 a situation of abuse. Her teacher decides not to expose her as the the thief of the violin yeah. to preserve his reputation because that would be bad. This entire discussion of personal secrets and whether they need to come out and how is is pervasive throughout the whole novel. Yeah. I thoroughly enjoyed that. And I think the other thing that you point out in there that's really great about the way that it tells these personal stories is that we get so much of the characters' internalized perspectives yes. on what's happened in their lives. We get, for example, Munekata, who is continuing to work on her husband's mm-hmm. mathematics papers, even though it seems that they're made up and completely fraudulent, but she's almost internalized the idea that there's still meaning to it and she's spent her entire life trying to decipher it. We have Sua Yatabe, who you mentioned is still kind kind of questioning herself about the romance that she had with her violin teacher, which like, regardless of if it is true, is just a blatant disregard of the power dynamic of student and teacher. Exactly. Right. And that's what this entire novel is playing on. There's a lot of discussion of power dynamic between those fortunate and those less, less fortunate. Like there there is, I'm going to keep focusing on this story because I I thought it was probably my, my favorite of the group, but the power dynamic between the music teacher and Yatabe, and also then when Yatabe goes to confront Noriko, because Noriko, she's on welfare. She basically gets by on the sustenance of the bones that she consumes to try and heal her. Yeah, she's like a big hoarder in her entire room full of just junk. But there's an irony in that she's, uh, Yatabe is trying to mentally cover up the abuse or the, you know, the situation she covered up with, with her teacher, um, and then going and using her power to try and uh, subjugate Noriko, going so far as to set her apartment on fire. Yeah. Yeah, th- there's no secret of, you know, th- there's this kind of uh, sense that none of these characters we're observing are, are righteous in their covering up of their sins. Yeah, and I mean, that's one of the things and why I bring up the Ring of Gyges, because a big part of that text in Plato's Republic yeah. is that there are actually two of the rings. One of them is that's given to Plato. a just man, and one of them yes. is given to an unjust man. I, I remember this. As soon as he said Plato, I'm like, oh, I remember this story. <laughs> I'm familiar. I was like, Gyge, what is... Yeah, I'm with you. We get some really, really interesting counterplays between various characters and the way that it also uses the perspective shifts to bounce that around because we are always following the perspective of someone and it kind of goes through an arc where they have no power, then they get the master key, they then get a lot of power, and then they lose the master key and have to deal with the fallout of their own actions. Exactly. And eventually it ends up in the hands of someone who is uh, less awful, Yoniko Kimura? Uh, who likes to send letters to her pupils. Yes. That's her thing. Every day, she spends four hours writing one letter to a pupil, and then she doesn't read the letter until the morning, 
And then she ships it off and she's like, I've done a good thing. To, and she does it every day. Yeah, because she's, she's retired. So yeah. she's trying to get her exercise and no, going out it. to post them. I've, look, I've seen my grandparents. My grandma, she does the same thing every day. She watches the news. But, you know, he, <laughs> maybe we should get her a hobby. It sounded like there was going to be a nice long stretch after say, that. And you just cut it off. I was going to say, I was going to say that, well, I'll tell you what my pop used to do uh, before he passed. He used to go for walks. So he'd go yeah. to the same you know, breakfast cafe place every every day and then he'd go for his walk and then he'd come back to to meet grandma and then that that happened every single day. Uh that was how he kept active and how he kept he, he kept himself sane. You know, that's yeah. that's what people do. And so this this Yoniko character before she finds them or before she steals the master key in an elaborate slapstick ruse, mm-hmm. um, she she just does this every day. And it's not until one of her students writes back and says, Oh, I was wondering if I could talk to you about my missing child that she, you know, gets active and mm. starts to suspect that uh, Miss Oeda, who is also in the same building as her. Who you'll um, remember is the character who had apparently fallen over in the beginning of the book. Yes, fallen over and probably died. But when she gets a response from one of her students, it says, maybe we, we can talk about girl things and uncover secrets. She's, she's like, I will now become action grandma. It's, it's really um, interesting too, because yeah. Kimura as a character, her entire arc seems to be that she is kind of one of the, the better characters yes. in this building. But once she gets the master key, she still starts to have this kind of vigilante justice sense. Yes. And it's even ridiculous. though it kind of makes sense that she's like, oh yes, you know, I want to help this student who's improved herself beyond the kind of salacious child that she used to be when mm. I taught her yep. kind of repairing that relationship that she has regrets about. Yeah. She still starts to go about and just make unfounded maneuvers about people in the building based on assumptions that have very conspiratorial basis. Yeah. Well, that's the, that's the kind of funny thing is that she, she basically uncovers the information we were shown at the start of the novel. Mm-hmm. This character is, is specifically here to become our detective in the 11th hour yeah. and to, make sure that the reader is on the right track while also sprinkling in clues to the actual mystery beyond just who killed the baby because we know that. There's a broader mystery here. There's something about this master key that needs to be uncovered. And I guess I'll have to tell you about my theories on that, my crackpot theories in in the third part of the show today. I guess we will. Herds, I'm glad that you got to experience Masako Tagawa's The Ring of Gaijis okay. I, here. I could, I could talk for hours about this. I thoroughly enjoyed reading this. Yeah, I'm really looking forward to get to talk about this uh, once we finish it next Please week. Because do. I think this book has done something really special with its reinterpretation of what a mystery even means. And I think that's going to be really fun. Anyway, we are discussing Masako Tagawa's The Master Key, chapters 3 to 7 today. And we'll be back with more of that in just a second. You're listening to Death of the Reader. Flex here with you. I'm thrilled to be joined on the line by Rebecca Stafford, author of the memoir Bad Behavior and the recent historical spy thriller The Imitator. Rebecca is also the CEO and publishing director of Kill Your Darlings, a magazine celebrating and fostering upcoming writers from all around Australia. Rebecca, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having me. So here on Death of the Reader, Herds and I are intimately familiar with killing our darlings, trying to pick which of your innumerable talking points to squeeze into a half hour episode. Why is it that killing your darlings is so important to the creative process? And how did that shape the magazine when you started it back in 2010? Yeah, I mean, we um, when we began the magazine, which was a, you know, began its life as a as a print periodical, we 
we were all editors um, around the table and obviously we cared a lot about editorial process and the way that editing has the capacity to shape um, emerging writers in particular who we wanted to showcase in the magazine. So Kill Your Darlings is a quote that's attributed to William Faulkner which speaks, you know, specifically about that editing process that in order to improve yourself um, and to kind of advance your writing uh, style and your writing technique, you need to be prepared to kill your darlings. And so that's been something that we've carried through the entirety of the magazine and it really informs our, our style where we like to work closely with our writers in terms of shaping um, shaping their work and and enabling them to produce the best possible piece at the end of that editorial process. So the internet has really opened the field for writers all around the world with online discussions, magazines like yourself moving online with workshops and more. Why should budding writers be engaged in that editorial process or creatives of any type, I suppose, and using these tools to improve their craft? For me, you know, I, I occupy a kind of interesting space. I am, a, as you mentioned, I'm a published writer myself, um, but also I, you know, have worked and continue to work for trade publishers in Australia. I've worked in-house and I now freelance working working with books as an editor. So to, to me, that editing process, although a writer comes to a publisher, whether it be a magazine or a book publisher, you know, with the work that they have, have produced, the publishing process um, in many senses is a collaborative one. You know, to my mind, it's really important for writers to to be open and to and to um, to value and to be excited by that editorial relationship that you develop with your editor. Editor, it's often quite a close relationship through the course of the project, but also you know, hopefully, long term, you come to develop trust and a relationship. You know, that that safety net, I suppose, um, between the reader and the uh, so the writer and then their eventual reader. You know, kind of catching any issues that might might occur before they're kind of out there in the world. Yeah, I mean, for you, obviously, working as an editor for for ages before getting into writing things like The Imitator uh, and your memoir, Bad Behaviour, was there a process of kind of discovery switching to the writer's side and maybe realizing like, oh, God, is this what I've been putting writers through all this time? <laughs> or did it just make it easier because you understood how the flip side worked? Yeah, um, that's a good question. I, th- I think, I mean, I was really, you know, by the time I'd finished the work, I was re- really looking forward to being edited myself because I knew there were things that needed to be improved across both, both both projects. So, you know, that's something I was really kind of anticipating. But, you know, I think I think about as an editor, it's about asking the right kinds of questions and and how we phrase those questions to a writer in order to draw out maybe not directly the question even that you're the answer to the question you're asking, but for them to kind of look at their work afresh. So, you know, it, it's been for my, for me, it's been really, really fantastic to have, you know, experiences on both sides. One thing that I've found that Kill Your Darlings do recently that I was really excited to see was uh, showing your working where feature writers share their workspace, their workflow and all the other details that often get lost under questions about the act of writing itself. And the example that springs to mind for me is your discussion with Anne Cottrell and Kill Your Darlings about immersing yourself in Vera Lynn and 1930s music while you're writing The Imitator. Why is it important to consider your whole process when writing rather than just bogging yourself down with the creative decisions? Well, I mean, you know, I think we all work differently. Um, that's one thing I've learned, you know, talking to other writers kind of, you know, across across the years. But at the same time, too, um, everyone has a writing routine as well. So, I mean, process and routine for me are kind of the same thing. You know, I've 
produced both of my books working kind of in quite modest sort of conditions. I wrote a lot of The Imitator in libraries and cafes. Um, you know, I do have my own office space at home, but I share it with like the cats and the dog and you know, <laughs> my son's forever kind of barging in. It's like it's, you know, you kind of make what you can um, of the situation. You just but, yeah. leave the keyboard out and suddenly the cat's written a chapter without yeah, you knowing that's anything. that's right. That's right. <laughs> Some of the best lines of the novel I, I can't even claim as my own. But, you know, so, but again, you know, you've got to kind of, I, I think, I think, yeah, if, if you're passionate about wanting to, to write and to produce something, you've got to kind of turn up. You've got to kind of turn up for work and whatever that shape of your routine is, that's okay um, in order to get get the project down and and you know, you've got to have something to work with in order to work it up um, up to a point to, for it to be um, at any kind of publishable um, standard. So jumping over to The Imitator then, I was really impressed with how broad Evelyn's experiences were through the novel. We go all the way from her school life, which harkens back to your memoir that we've mentioned, through getting embroiled in spycraft and right into infiltrating fascist groups on the tail end of the Second World War, all without losing the reader in that variety. Why was it so important to tell a story of Evelyn's life and not just capitalise on the intensity of particular moments of spy work in the novel? Yeah, I mean, I think because I wanted to, you know, a, a very character-driven novel, even though it does, you know, when we when you describe it, 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 it is it does have elements of that kind of genre suspense um, and kind of crime elements as well, being set in you know deep within the world of MI5 at the beginning of World War II. So it was kind of straddling those two um, intentions. Um, but I, I was, you know, really in order for me to kind of understand what would draw a young woman into this kind of work and what would enable her to kind of um, continue in this role and to, you know, succeed to very extents in that role and needed to understand who she was and that required me to kind of go backwards in time. You know, Evelyn's family aren't wealthy or influential or, you know, quasi-aristocratic and so she's trapped, sort of trapped between those two worlds. And it's there and it's at that moment where she makes a decision that if she's going to kind of get along in this world and succeed in this world, she needs to imitate those around her, um, which has, you know, quite catastrophic um, consequences for her later in the novel. Yeah, I mean, one thing that also really interested me is that you base this character off Joan Miller, who was a real-world spy whose work you mentioned in a note at the end of the book. How did you first come across Joan's story and what's one part of her history that you weren't able to include that was one of those killed darlings? Yeah, well, um, Joan Miller was a really interesting person. So, yeah, so Evelyn is Evelyn's quite loosely based on her in the sense that some of the investigations that Joan participated in during her role uh, at MI5 I based Evelyn's work on in the novel. But Joan's personality, from what I could gather from her own memoir, which I found, which I tracked down, um, was quite different. She was very kind of charismatic, confident, quite sort of um, eccentric. Joan Miller is sort of relatively well, well known amongst people who are interested in MI5 at that period of time. So she's not a hidden person, but she was, there was an, an attempt, I think, to expunge her from historical records. And she left the service. And then, like I said, she wrote this memoir. They wouldn't publish it in the UK because it breached the Official Secrets Act, the authorities said. So she went over to Ireland and had it published. And then soon after, had her car run off a cliff and she died. So that kind of whole, you know, web of intrigue yeah. is so fascinating. Um, but, yeah, you know, Joan Miller, she's someone who played such a such an important role, was so young when she was recruited, you know, she was 19 and then sort of thrown into the, these most extraordinary situations and then 
like many women, you know, at that time, her her work and her value was just kind of discarded. And so Evelyn, you know, uh, one of you asked me before, you know, why I wanted to kind of paint this more detailed portrait of this young woman. I wanted to draw out and to kind of, in a sense, honour the the work that women were doing during the war because so many of them have been forgotten. Yeah, and I, I think that came across really well. I super enjoyed getting to read through the book and it's been a pleasure speaking with you, Rebecca. Oh, thank you. Uh, thank you so much for joining us here on Death of the Reader. The Imitator is available from Alan and Unwin, and you can find Kill Your Darlings online. And we'll have links up on the podcast for all of that. If you're curious in checking it out, we are discussing Masuko Togawa's The Master Key, and we'll be back with more of that in just a second. Subscribe to 2SER. Become part of the 2SER family. Subscribe to the station now, and you'll receive your very own subscriber card, a special 60-page issue of our Listening Post magazine, and our limited edition bumper sticker. Sign up as a passionate subscriber, and you'll also receive a free t-shirt all subscribers are eligible to enter our weekly giveaways both on air and through our weekly subscriber email head to 2ser.com and subscribe today you're listening to death of the reader flex and herds here discussing masako togawa's the master key parts three to seven and herds you're in the hot seat flex i'm this is insane. I've gone full madness today. There just, is there is a oh. crumpled, tear-soaked <laughs> piece of paper with coffee stains on yeah, the table in true. front of us. This man has been up at all hours of the <laughs> night solving this crime. I, well, <laughs> allegedly solving this crime. I don't even know yet. I haven't I heard the, the answers. Thing. I wanna I wanna start this off. I, I had all these different ways that I wanted to kind of launch into this discussion. I had all these different you know, because because I like to kind of plan out my thoughts when I'm moving into a, a part three when I'm solving yeah. a mystery in terms of I want to talk about this element, this element, this element. I want to cap off with it. Like I kind of plan things out in my head. The other thing before we get into oh, this, you, herds, you gonna just slam me? Yes. Uh, what is it? Well, Flex? the thing is, is on this show before we come on and we talk to you about the mysteries. Normally, we have a bit of a pre-discussion <laughs> so we know roughly where we're gonna go during yes. the episode. Well, yeah. And normally, you can kind of tell how well the person is going in the book based on how much they want to say. Mm-hmm. If they say a lot, they've either completely got it or- <laughs> Or missed the mark completely. Or missed the mark entirely and are still kind of fishing for things. But if they say absolutely nothing, <laughs> yeah. it's frightening. Yeah. And Herd so far has refused to say anything. We spent the I entire can't. car ride to the studio today in silence. Yeah. I'm terrified, Herds. what's happened? Yeah, okay. So he- here's the thing. I, I say all of this because I had a segment where I wanted to talk about pieces of information that I knew were true because of thematics and like intuition in the story, but that I couldn't justify. I am now at a point where I can explain most of those things because I went back and did like two extra reads through the novel. The perspective again that I went into this was that all of these different subplots have to mean something. They have to be heading somewhere. They're showing us the, the power of the master key, but the only way that these separate elements of the story make sense is if there's someone pulling the strings because the newspaper is in the incinerator. Um, the violin is, is magically procured at the end and the priest has to know all the secrets of the people in the building. Now I'm going to get right into it. I baffled around long enough. All right, let's there hear it. There is only one character, two, character, two characters, two characters uh, who might fit the bill here. And I am of course talking about Miss Tojo. Uh-huh. And not Tamara. This is the twist here. It's not. The oh, two, it's not the two receptionists. It's not the two Haru Santo, who is the white-haired person who mysteriously leaves whenever the lights go on. It's because 
uh, Miss Tojo is S- Santo. That's so. Wait, that's so it is twist. one character. It is. It is. I'm sorry. Okay. I, I, I'm. Cool. I'm that was you that out was there. a little bewildering. Okay, so hold on. You're saying yes for the past seven years. Maybe not quite seven years, but but up to seven years. Yes, the receptionist. Yes. Has been masquerading in the dark with a wig yes. around this building yes. and nobody has noticed. Yes. Because she's on the fifth floor and people don't move around much. They're all people, Flex. I mean, that's the, that's I, it. I don't have an issue with that. That's what fine. That's some with? mystery grade stuff, Herds. Yes. The thing I'm confused about, though, mm. Herds, is that the things that the priest is saying at the seance yes. are not things that anyone at any point in the story says to Tojo. And there are some so things is, that okay, characters- okay, Hold on. There are some things that characters <laughs> have explicitly observed as being things they kept secret, like Suiyatabe's relationship with her violin teacher. Imagine a train. Imagine a train. It's got all these, these cars and it's got, you got a master key that like opens all the doors. What happens- when the master key goes missing, well, the conductors, they have their individual keys. You know, they have one for the for the train cars that they're in. I think that the actual, like, twisty twist here is that Tojo is going around snooping on people because she has a second master key. There are two receptionists. And hold on. And Tamara doesn't know about this? Yes. She's explicitly stated A, to be younger, and B, she's always catnapping. And that means that whenever Tamara's on duty, uh, Turger can be off doing her white hair shtick and, like, snooping on people. Also, at the end of part two, she's like, I'm going to go give give this key to someone to check the bathroom door. Oops, I almost forgot my crutch. I don't think her leg is as bad as she says it is. I think she's active. I think she's up and about. She's like, oh, I'm an old lady receptionist okay, who doesn't okay. know anything and can't wander around the building collecting things. Hold on. So you're trying to say, having just ranted in the first part about how Miss Kimura is yeah. is the detective of this story who shows up at the 11th hour, are you sure. now suggesting to me that our actual detective all along has been Miss Tojo? Yes. And yes. that she's going to come in screaming? Okay. I don't think, here's the thing. I don't think she needs to scream. I think because she knows. She was the person who like, Saw the baby being put in the bathtub ages ago. So what this is, is taking me a long time to go out to the point and we're not even done yet, but she basically is using uh, the priest to, to get people. She's trying to like expose all the secrets of people in the building through the priest's like seances. So you, now you're saying that one of the two detectives in the story has withheld information for all of these years and is now using that information against other people yes. in the story to blackmail it's them. It's been a long, not even blackmail. It's been a long con to like expose the, the baby in the bathtub. I think that that's you think the that point. A, you think that a character who was there to witness the scene yeah. has decided to enact justice yes. by waiting seven years yes. to establish a cult Yes. To heal the violin player's fingers. Yes. To yes. solve the murder <laughs> of a baby yes. in the basement. Yes. Let me be clear. I think what? that the, the finger thing is a trauma thing. It's not a magic thing. I don't think that what's-her-face is in on it. Violin lady's <laughs> in on it. Uh, also, we need to talk about George. I need to get there. How Let's- many layers deep does this Let's- go? We need to talk about George. Let's talk about George then. This <laughs> so is too much. George is alive. I knew this in my heart, Flex. I knew this in my soul. This must be true because Keiko says she has a mother's intuition and mother's intuitions are never wrong. There is a note. There is a mention. One of the big clues we're given for figuring out where George is. Uh, Keiko, Keiko finds it very strange that there is an American woman reading her son's comic book 
And so she leaves this child on her own, on, on, on his own, and then he's missing. The American woman is, in fact, the second wife of Mr. Kraft. And he put the advertisement in only the Japanese papers so that she wouldn't find out about it. Listen, the the, the wild theory you mm-hmm. gave us for Inspector Imanishi Investigates, yes, which you can the, catch up on the podcast. insane theory you should all listen to. That, that surprised me, Herbs. Yeah. <laughs> this is the most incoherent yes. mess of a theory I think you've ever presented on the show. This is the year where I finally regained my old roots as the conspiracy man. And we blow this show wide open. This is it. I think I'm going to need to speak to a therapist, <laughs> not ask questions about this theory, Herds. 45 was your therapist. 45 ask you questions about the dreams and how they make you feel, Flex. All right. So I have this co-host on, the, on my show. Yeah, and yeah. he keep we we solve murder mysteries oh, together. Sounds and, good. That's very fun. And he comes on the show, yes. and I I try to do my best to solve yeah. these murder Ooh, mysteries. I spend a lot of time do. going back and forth and making sure that I've mm. I've gotten the themes tied out. And mm. yes, so far we've had a we've had a great track record. It, it's a lot of pressure, but we've managed <laughs> to solve these books as we keep going. But I feel like my co-host just isn't taking it seriously anymore. Do you I, think I, that maybe he has lost his mind? I mean, the thought has crossed my mind, but oh, interesting. I think he might just be trying to screw with me and, and you. <laughs> he may be trying to reduce my credibility. Perhaps in your dreams, you I, think- I haven't slept maybe, for weeks. Maybe Herds is trying to well, Hold on, what, how you. do you know his name? I never oh, said his name to I you. I am a big fan of show, you see. Oh, well, th- this, yes. that's a conflict of interest, unfortunately. Mm, unfortunately. As much I as I appreciate your listenership. Pick up my bags and put my- Stethoscope of a, do you think maybe that we should talk about the child? <laughs> I think we can do that next week on the show. So. You're listening to Death of the Reader, we are discussing Masago Togawa's The Master Key. Next week on the show, we'll be looking at the last chapter, the one last chapter and the epilogue of this book. Herds. Flex. Why? We even see you next week on the next episode of Death of Zerida. Thank you for listening. (laughs) This is 2SER 107.3.